the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. show and i am robert steinbuck filling in for dave all week and next monday folks i hope you remember our important conversation of yesterday because we're going to continue it today we have we had spoken yesterday about how the trump administration the office of management and budget issued a a a memorandum that stated no longer will your hard-earned taxpayer dollars be misused to fund lecturers to come in and indoctrinate government employees in these notions captured partially by the title critical race theory. A listener a friend sent me an image from a slide that's included in one of these lectures lectures provided to federal employees as part of this critical race theory indoctrination and i'm going to discuss that slide with you And we are going to see how this critical race theory approach, indoctrination, uh, re-education camp, to borrow a term from Cambodia, amongst other places, during the Communist Revolution, by the way, uh, is trying to be done here, has been underway here and we'll resume underway here if there's a biden harris administration or as harris inadvertently slipped harris biden administration doesn't much matter we all know who will be pulling the reins in that relationship and to be clear some people say well why do you care if it's harris or biden not much, but a little bit. And here's why. And then I don't, I haven't forgotten. I'm coming to that slide. Here's why it matters a little bit. Not a lot, folks. Not a lot. Biden claims he's somewhat moderate. Historically, he's been somewhat moderate. But throughout this campaign, he has espoused leftist views. 
So the claim of moderation by Joe Biden are largely undercut by the specific proclamations that he has made throughout the current campaign. So to the extent that one thought, well, Biden might be a little bit more moderate than Harris, it seems unlikely uh, to begin with. Uh, But if there is a kernel of moderation there, and I doubt there is, there is none so in Harris. Harris has bought into entirely the leftist movement. Now, to be fair, one might question my use of that term in a moment. Uh, To be fair, I'm not sure Harris buys into anything except her own opportunism. But I think she has cloaked herself more so in the language of outright leftism than Biden has throughout her career as compared compared to his. Now, mind you, of course, hers has been a shorter career than his. In any event, you're going to get significant leftism if there's a Biden administration. And I said yesterday, look, I think it's overwhelmingly likely that Trump will win Arkansas. That doesn't mean you shouldn't go out and vote. In fact, it means the contrary for a number of reasons. Let me tell you why. First, don't make the mistake that Hillary made in the last election. That is, they got cocky, and the result was that they didn't even campaign in certain states. The analogy is, let us as voters not be cocky, and not because if we get too cocky and we don't vote, there is a chance, there is a chance that Trump could win solidly red states. Excuse me, lose solidly red states. So you must vote just to ensure what is likely to happen in the state. But more importantly, let me be honest with you, more importantly, he's not the only one on the ballot. So we have, for example, our wonderful in, uh, Congressman French Hill. I, sorry, I paused because I was going to say where. Depends where you're listening to me, of course. But if you're in the sort of greater Pulaski County region, it's broader than Pulaski County, is Congressman French Hill's um, district. But Pulaski, I think he has five counties, in fact. So I don't mean to neglect the other four counties, although I'm no political expert and I can't name them offhand. Chris Corbett is likely to come join us later in the day. Uh, And as you know, he's a local attorney, local engineer. And I I think quite literally third or fourth generation Arkansan. And so he knows every county in the state. I think that's actually true. I think he may know every county in the state. In any event, so he he can further inform us. But in any event, we've got to get out and vote for our wonderful congressman, French Hill, because that is always a close race. Always. And while I say he covers Pulaski County, That's where the biggest challenge for him is, in Pulaski County. So if you're listening to this show right now and you live in Pulaski County, you must get out and vote. Because we, as conservatives, need your vote for French Hill. Again, he's not the only one on the ballot. There are other positions on the ballot. Uh, There are a lot of state office positions 
on the ballot. So we need your vote for all of those positions. So please remember, be a good citizen, do your civic duty, and get out and vote. To be clear, by get out and vote, that means including if you want an absentee ballot. I put in for an absentee ballot. Remember, the president and the administration doesn't oppose absentee ballots. You're not necessarily driven by their position on it. But nonetheless, the opposition that the administration has aptly pointed out is what we call mail-in ballots. And those are the ballots that the government just starts printing out based on some last known address. And the point there, the concern there is that much like the junk mail that you get from time to time for the previous resident in your house or apartment, wherever you may live, there's going to be plethora of ballots sent out to incorrect addresses. So that gives rise, obviously, to a great propensity, a great likelihood of fraud. But the specific ballot system that is the absentee ballot, you have to write in and provide your signature saying, I want my personal ballot at my current address, and here it is. And I know so because I did it. So if you want an absentee ballot, make sure to do that, folks. If you want to go out and vote, that's fine, too. Whichever is more convenient to you, but it's important that you get out to vote. You hear people say often, this is the most important election to come out and vote. It's kind of like when Tide says, we're the best laundry detergent because it's really hard to prove. But what I can say, and my point by saying that, by the way, is it may be true in this one. But what I can say definitively is this is one of the most important. In other words, we can't necessarily determine ahead of time how important your individual vote will be, but we know that Recent elections have been incredibly tight, incredibly close. When, for example, as you recall, when President Reagan won, it was a huge landslide. So that was not a tight election. So your vote was not particularly important. We didn't know it going into it, but we knew it after the fact. This one, going into it, and I guarantee you after the fact, we will know will be a fairly tight, at least, if not particularly tight, election. So please, uh, get out and vote my little public service message there for you. Incidentally, uh, I mentioned our great Congressman French Hill. I support him. I endorse him. I like him. I know him. Uh, But I also want to tell you that his opponent is welcome to come on this show while I'm hosting, and I'm sure Dave extends the invitation as well uh, for a discussion. We welcome all sorts. In fact, I know that Dave has had with me on the congressman's opponent on the show. I simply point that out to say this is an equal opportunity station. We want everybody's views to be heard, and then you can make an informed decision. I've made my decision already. I know what Dave's opponent, excuse me, Dave's opponent, French's opponent uh, has to say, and I disagree with her politics. That's all. I don't dislike her, but I disagree with her politics because she's pretty far left, and I ain't, and Dave's listeners aren't. But she is truly welcome and will be treated respectfully, by the way. 
treated respectfully on the show. Doesn't mean I wouldn't challenge her with questions. Doesn't mean I will agree with her on virtually anything she has to say. But she will be treated respectfully if she wants to come on the show and she's welcome. And this is uh, an open invitation for her to do so. And on that sweet note, let's take a break, Robert. Robert Steinbach, he is the he is a law professor at the Bowen School of Law at UA Little Rock. We have traffic, we have news and more coming up. So don't go anywhere. This is the Dave Ellswick Show. 101.1 FM, The Answer. This show and I am Robert Steinbach filling in for Dave all week and next Monday. We are continuing our conversation, ongoing as it is, of current events. But specifically, we're talking about how the Trump administration has correctly, has aptly, has soundly put out a memorandum stating that no longer will it allow for the funding of with using your taxpayer dollars of training of government employees under the guise, under the title of critical race theory. And I had teased before the break that I will share with you a slide provided to me by one of Dave's listeners, a friend, that shows the propaganda that is being put forth under this title of critical race theory. And to be clear, not by accident, meaning reflecting aptly what is at the core of critical race theory. It's a slide, and on the left, it has a description for the audience, those being indoctrinated by the lecturer in the federal government and to the right is a political cartoon like you see in the newspaper. So on the left, it says institutional racism. It it provides that term. And then it says, here's the definition. Institutional racism is societal patterns and structures that oppress certain groups on the basis of race or ethnicity. Okay. So that's a, highbrow, academic-sounding definition. What do we mean by that? And by we, I mean they. Because this notion of institutional racism, as applied, you will see in a moment, is a propaganda tool for the left. Institutional racism. Now, of course, there were concepts, there were actions and practices that I think we could we would aptly today call institutional racism. Slavery was institutional racism. Yes, it was. So it's not like the term can't have any meaning. The question is, does the term as sort of amorphously defined, by the way, not by accident, folks, on purpose, on purpose to keep you in a haze, Does the term have application to today's society? Well, let's look at the political cartoon that's provided as an example of institutional racism for today. It shows 
an African-American couple at the teller desk at a bank. And it says uh, bank, uh, and it gives the name of a city in the South, right? Because we in the South, yeah, right? We, we're the ones that take all the, the brunt of claims of racism, to be clear. Prior to the Civil War, the South had what I just described as institutional racism through slavery. Absolutely. Last time I checked, there was a civil war to undo that. There was a civil rights movement. There were the civil rights statutes enacted. There was the 14th Amendment adopted. These are a few things that may have happened over the last 150 years. It's a black couple standing at the teller's desk asking the teller a question, and then there's a quote below providing the answer from the teller. And it says, you need to speak to one of our loan officers. So one deduces from looking at this image that the black couple is asking the teller about getting a loan. So far, so good. And then off to the right of the image is a door showing the loan officer. So you see on the left, the person, uh, the teller, speaking to the customers, and the teller's desk is on the left, and the loan officer's office is on the right. You've seen a comparable setup when you've walked into the bank. The loan officer's door is open. The loan officer is sitting at his desk, and the loan officer is clothed entirely in a KKK robe and hood. Let me say that again. The loan officer is clothed entirely in a KKK hood and robe. So this is what they're telling you. This is what the critical race theorists who are paid with your tax dollars and coming in to indoctrinate federal employees are telling you that loan officers and the like, by the way, are racists. And that needs to be undone. If it were true, it would need to be undone, by the way. But this is what they're telling you. This is the claim of pervasive hostility, of pervasive racism in society today, and as I said, and they throw in the fact that it happens to be, this bank is in the South. That's right. That's right. Blame anybody in the South. I live in the South. I'm no racist. I live in the South. I don't know a racist in Little Rock. I don't know a racist in Arkansas. Let me be clear. I'm not saying there's no such thing as a racist in Arkansas. I'm not saying there's no such thing as a racist in the South. I'm sure there is, simply by sheer numbers. But they are the vast, vast, vast minority. No pun intended. And yet, the indoctrination goes on by the critical race theorists, formerly paid by your tax dollars to indoctrinate federal, federal employees. That's what this program is about. I spoke to you yesterday about how the deans from the four or five, I forget the number, 
University of California law schools say, we must continue to teach critical race theory because it's important to be applied when it comes to hiring decisions. Hiring decisions. Because they're telling you that all hiring is otherwise racist. Yet none All of right, those Robert, are, let's pause yeah. there. Um, we will pick back up on the hiring and um, we have to get to news and then to weather and then to traffic. So don't go anywhere. This is the Dave Ellswick Show, 101.1 FM, The Answer. This is the Dave Ellswick Show and I am Robert Steinbuck filling in for Dave all week and next Monday. We are talking about this slide that was provided as part of the training that the federal government was pro- was using in certain federal agencies teaching these concepts now prohibited now stopped from being funded with your taxpayer dollars under the rubric under the concept of critical race theory And as I said before the break, it showed a black couple at a teller's desk in a bank seeking to take out a loan, and the teller directing the black couple to go to the loan officer. Of course, that's perfectly normal. And yet, and also showing the loan officer in the image itself, and the loan officer sitting at his desk fully clothed in a KKK uh, robe and hood. Nothing subtle about this. They are telling you that society is inherently racist. It's just not true, folks. I will not subscribe to the re-education camp. I will not subscribe to the mind control of the left. I live in society. I see what's going on. This is not. Again, this is not a racist society. As I've always said, I will repeat now the disclaimer, so to speak. Of course, within 350 million people, you will have the rough population of the country. You will have racists. Is society racist? No, it isn't. No, it isn't. My father died over 15 years ago. He came to this country in the 50s. But he had lived in uh, Poland when the Nazis invaded. He had lived in the Soviet Union during World War II under Soviet control. He knew what racism was about. He knew even back then when there was still racism significant in the United States, meaning Jim Crow laws were legal. The civil rights enactments had not been Created and adopted. And that the United States was the shining beacon on the hill. But he did not think it was perfect. He protested, for example, when he was in the South about separate water fountains and bathrooms. So he knew that there were problems then. But, of course... Much later, when I was alive and sort of sentient, he said this, Rob, I've seen racism. I know racism. This is not a racist country. 
And that's a writing almost 20 years ago. So this is, that's, of course, well before um, we had any, uh, um, we had an African-American president, for example, well before that, just by way of one example. And so he said, this is not a racist country because we had already started to hear these leftist claims made under this neo-Marxist philosophy. And he knew what it was. My dad did. He knew neo-Marxist philosophy when he saw it because he lived under Marxist philosophy. He lived in the Soviet Union. He knew exactly what it was about. So don't kid yourselves. This is a movement to undermine everything that we believe in. By claiming, can you believe this? Can you believe that up until now, the federal government itself was attempting to indoctrinate federal employees with information such as saying that if a black couple goes into a bank, they will be their loan request would be reviewed by a KKK member. Can you believe that? It's disgusting. It's offensive. And most importantly, it's downright false. That's how we know it's the equivalent of the re-education camps from the communist era. There's not even an attempt to disguise what's going on. It's exactly the type of propaganda that was used by communists throughout the re-education process that took place then. And by the way, as you hopefully and undoubtedly recognize, the notion of re-education is not actual education. It's propaganda. There's no re-education. There was education. You may not be educated. I'm not educated on everything in the world. I'm no nuclear physicist or many other things. So I could be educated on nuclear physics. I can't be re-educated on nuclear physics. When they tell you what they're doing is education, it's not education. It's re-education. And re-education means indoctrination. And this is what the new left is about. The new left is about old communism. They haven't even disguised it. They're using exactly the same tactics down to political cartoons. Political cartoons was a mainstay of the re-education program. Simple characterizations, mischaracterizations, of society was a mainstay of communist propaganda and indoctrination. So we're seeing exactly the same thing take place today, folks. It's really unfortunate. It's really sad. And it goes back to the point that I made at the beginning of today's show. You've got to get out and vote. This may or may not be the most consequential election that you vote in, but it certainly will be one of the most, if not the most. I simply say that to reflect the fact I don't want to engage in hyperbole. I really don't. Meaning I can't tell you if it will be absolutely the most consequential election, but it will be one of the top three. That I can tell you. 
That I can tell you. Historically, going forward, I can't tell you. But historically, that I can tell you. So make sure you vote. Do it by um, absentee ballot or do it in person. Doesn't matter. Remember, the president supports absentee ballot. He doesn't support the mail-in ballot because the latter is absolutely subject to remarkable fraud. Oh, you're here. Oh, the president, he's against, he's against people voting. It's voting, voter suppression. No, it ain't. No, it ain't. You know what it is? Fraud suppression. Let's suppress the fraud. Oh, well, you see, there's very little evidence that there's been any fraud historically. Wrong, by the way. There's a lot of evidence that there's been historically fraud. Look at the Jack Kennedy election and what took place in Chicago. Lots of fraud. And currently, the thing about fraud is, if it's done well, it's hard to detect. That's why we try to prevent it at the outset. That's why we try to put in place rules at the outset that will prevent it. Please. All of a sudden, oh, what? Huh? Say the liberals. Fraud? Huh? Me? Where? Yeah, yeah. Willful blindness is what they're talking about. Let's not kid ourselves. It was remarkable how Hillary criticized the president. Well, he didn't say he was going to accept the results of the election. And now all the leftists do is threaten to not accept the results of the election. Why do I bring that up here? Because it's part and parcel of their attempts to undermine legitimate voting. The other part, as I mentioned, is their unwillingness to have fraud prevention. Their unwillingness. And all the president said, by the way, back in 2016 was, well, let's see what happens. Let's see what happens doesn't mean, let's see whether I win. Let's see what happens means, let's see if there was any fraud that seems apparent during the election, one way or the other. So even there, the critics got it wrong. But the critics aren't about criticizing mistakes, errors. The critics are about criticizing Trump and then creating a mistake or I'm not saying the president has never made a mistake. He absolutely has. I know he has because he's a human being. I know he said inaccurate things. Sure. Yes, we all have. And in addition, as I've said many times on this show, the president comes quite literally from a background of real estate development, wherein he uses what's known as puffery or salesmanship. So this is not to say that those claims are inaccurate, but to say that one recognizes when someone sells real estate, he says, it's the greatest thing ever. Well, there's no way to really measure that. So when the president says something about like, it's the greatest ever, okay. The same way Tide Laundry Detergent claims they're the greatest ever. Are they? How do you know? How do you know? Are they dramatically different than several other kinds? I doubt it. So when the president says it's the greatest ever, I consider that to simply mean, aptly, by the way, I'm not giving him any more leeway than I can give any other politician. We've done a good job because you can't measure whether it's the greatest ever. That's puffery. I have no problem with that. But this is part of what the fake news has been doing. 
They say, oh, that's a falsehood. No, it's not. No, it's not. I can't even read the New York Times any longer as legitimate news. I read it, but not as legitimate news because it's so overwhelmingly biased. You can't even get past the headlines where they build in these digs to the president every time they can. It's really remarkable. Anyway, let's go on to the next topic. Um, Heidi, is it an apt time to take a break before I start the next topic? What do you think? moment i seem to be lucky in that regard Uh, (laughs) as you know folks incidentally i'm remote uh, and dave has been remote for some time uh, when he hosts the show as well heidi is actually in the studio uh, doing the hard work necessary to transmit this show to you every morning and every afternoon and we really appreciate her hard work. So I gather she'll be back in a moment. We'll take our break. Yes. Interim, well, sorry. What? Sorry, Robert. We no can worries. take our break now. Um, Let's do it. Yes, it is. Uh, it is almost 648 in the morning. Uh, traffic is up next. You are listening to the Dave Ellswick show. Robert Steinbach is filling in for Dave. He is a law professor at the Bowen School of Law. You are listening to 101.1 FM. The answer. I am Robert Steinbuck, filling in for Dave all week and next Monday. As you know, I am a law professor. My views are my views alone and do not necessarily reflect my employer, do not necessarily reflect the UA Little Rock Bowen School of Law or any other component of the University of Arkansas, including the University of Arkansas system. We're talking about topics of the day. That's what we do here on the Dave Ellswick Show. We combine both national and local politics. We have a local issue that I'm going to talk about a little bit later in the show. Uh, Right now, I want to talk to you about an article written by Alan Dershowitz. Alan Dershowitz, as you may already know, is a was a law professor at Harvard Law School for years and years, something like 30 years. He's retired now, but he's still active in the law. Uh, he's no longer a full-time teacher. I don't know if he teaches a class sort of on the side, as we colloquially say, but I believe he's retired from his primary duties of full-time employment at the Harvard Law School. Now, to be clear, Alan Dershowitz, is a liberal. He's not an extreme leftist, but he is a liberal. And in the real tradition of liberals, he's a civil libertarian, meaning he believes in civil rights. He believes in equality. He believes in due process. The irony is that the left today has abandoned those principles and the right has taken them up. Good for the right, by the way. The right were slower to pick up on those proper concepts than the left, because as I just said, the left or the liberals, to be more accurate, were the at the vanguard of those issues in the 60s and 70s. But now the conservatives have taken up the mantle in part because the leftists have abandoned it. It's really remarkable. So the result is there was really no reason to support any of the left's proposals. 
they have nothing to hang on to any longer. We've been talking about what's going on in the so-called social justice movement of today, in the protests, in the riots, in the thuggery, in the violence, in the arson, in the looting, in the burning, in the assault and battery, in the murder that has been going on. Well, well, Rob, you see, you don't have that right. You see, the majority of these protests are entirely peaceful. Yeah? What's a percentage that isn't? How many buildings have to be burned? How many people have to be killed, mugged, assaulted, battered for you to say that these are not peaceful protests? Of course there are peaceful protesters out there. Of course there are. And by the way, more power to them. But that's not the focus of what's going on in society today because the violence is dangerous It's pervasive. It's overwhelming. And that's what should be and is the focus of right-minded people. Sorry. And it's a shame to some extent that those people who decide to pursue peaceful protests are completely swallowed up by the violence. But it's true. It's absolutely true. Part of it stems from the fact that organizers of these protests are often violent themselves. They subscribe to violent ideology. It's the neo-Marxism, which is an inherently violent ideology. And now I want to talk about what's called the Black Lives Matter movement, albeit it's not a completely defined group. It's a series of groups, and so we have to try to define it as we observe it, as opposed to relying on some definition being provided by the group, because there is no the group. It's just sort of amorphous, disjointed grouping of individuals and subgroups. But the result is an overall generally problematic philosophy and a problematic behavior. So Dershowitz writes, is the Black Lives Matter platform, platform, excuse me, folks, anti-Semitic? This is something I talked about yesterday on Dave's show, how I read to you yesterday one of the many, many, many virtue signaling statements being put out by industry and academia throughout this country in which there is embedded racism embedded anti-Semitism in the statement. This is what we need to recognize. That is, that much of what's going on in the critical race theory, as we just discussed, in the Black Lives Matter movement, in the so-called social justice movement, is a type of racism itself, be it anti-Semitic, be it anti-white. I discussed yesterday anti-male Uh, It's really sexism, but we can put it under this 
more generalized rubric of racism to the extent we understand that to be simply a form of discrimination based on people's inherent traits. But and let's continue to be more that accurate. thought, Robert, yep. in the next hour into the seven o'clock hour. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to the Dave Ellswick Show. Robert Steinbach is filling in for Dave this week as Dave is on vacation, chilling at the beach. So let's take a break. We got traffic. We got news. We got weather all coming your way on the Dave Ellswick show. Robert Steinbuck filling in for Dave all week and next Monday it is 7.06 in the morning here in Little Rock. It is a cool, bright morning or fairly bright morning so far. And I am talking to you about topics of the day. It is truly remarkable the environment in which we are living, in which we see really patent hostility, patent racism being propagated by these leftist movements and we are being told that we have to fund these leftist movements and finally we see responses by government to say enough is enough we see the trump administration saying we are not going to fund these leftist movements of critical race scholars critical race theory We're not going to use this indoctrination method on government employees. And I detailed to you in the last segment how literally one of the slides being presented as part of this indoctrination method is showing that the loan officer at a community bank, and it's generic, Right. It's not it's not an actual picture of an actual event. It's a cartoon trying to make the claim that the loan officers at banks across this country are members of the KKK. They show the loan officer in a KKK hood and robe. And this is the tragedy is it's this reeducation, this indoctrination by the left. And so I started to read to you, and I'm going to continue now, this opinion piece by Alan Dershowitz, former professor of law at Harvard Law School, about the Black Lives Matter movement. Because remember, the Black Lives Matter movement is at the very heart of this indoctrination program. And so... Dershowitz writes, in 2016, I wrote an op-ed demanding that Black Lives Matter rescind the portion of its platform that describes Israel as an apartheid state involved in genocide against the Palestinian people. I pointed out that the platform refers to no other country but Israel, despite the egregious records of many foreign countries with regard to police brutality. 
It is now four years later, and these provisions of the platform remain intact. I will add, by the way, folks, that the Black Lives Matter movement is far more dominant and far more embraced by the Democrat Party, the Democratic Party now, than it was four years ago. Back to the opinion piece from Dershowitz. Defenders of Black Lives Matter argue that the inclusion of this critique against Israel is not anti-Semitic. It's merely anti-Zionist, meaning it's not against Jews per se. It's against the country of Israel. You can criticize the country of Israel without necessarily being anti-Jewish. That's a true statement. Uh, Let's say Israel adopts some policy on the International Monetary Fund that is not a sound policy. Let's say Israel adopts a a proposal or or advances a proposal that uh, would make the International Monetary Fund insolvent. Well, you would say that, well, that's a bad proposal. Israel's government is pursuing a bad idea. Okay, no problem. There's nothing inherently anti-Semitic about that critique of Israel. But you can also critique Israel in an anti-Semitic fashion. And Dershowitz is bringing out that contrast. He goes on to say, as a law professor for 50 years, I said 30 earlier, 50 years, my goodness. I frequently use hypothetical cases. The students call them hypos to deepen the analysis of a problem. So please consider the following hypo. Imagine a world in which there was only one black African nation, a nation built largely by previously enslaved black men and women. Imagine further that this singular black nation had a good record on the environment, on gay rights, on gender equality, on human rights, and on defending itself against attack from predominantly white nations. As you realize, perhaps, folks, Dershowitz is setting up the contrast that Israel is the only Jewish nation in the Middle East and all of the other countries are Muslim nations. Uh, He goes on, Dershowitz does, to say, but as with all nations, this hypothetical black nation was far from perfect. It had its flaws and imperfections. Now imagine further that do-gooder organizations in America and around the world were to single out the black nation for unique condemnation. For example, imagine that an environmental group or gay rights group were to publish a platform in which it criticized the environmental and gay rights policies of its own nation, but then went, on, uh, uh, then went out of its way to single out only the black nation from among all the other polluters and homophobic countries in the world. Would anyone hesitate to describe that singling out of the world's only black nation for unique condemnation as an act of bigotry motivated by anti-black racism? If that is the case, how is it different when Black Lives Matter singles out the only nation state of the Jewish people for unique and undeserved condemnation? Is not the application of a double standard based on religion as bad as a double standard based on race? He goes on to say, criticizing Israel for its imperfections is not only fair, it's desirable. But only when it is based on a single standard of comparison with other nations of the world, condemning the nation state of the Jewish people alone in a world with far greater offenders cannot be justified by any moral principle. Me talking now, folks. Yeah, because you see what's going on here. And Dershowitz is going to say this further in his piece. 
the driving motivation for the criticism of, of Israel is not the particular activity of Israel. The driving motivation by many groups, not all groups, uh, for criticizing Israel, such as the Black Lives Matter criticism of Israel, is anti-Semitism. To go on with Dershowitz's uh, article, it is anti-Semitic, pure and simple, and the Black Lives Matter platform is guilty of the serious sin and crime of anti Semitism. Unless Black Lives Matter explicitly rescinds its anti-Semitic platform, the organization should not receive the support of decent people. Me again, folks. Yet the Black Lives Matter organization and movement is entirely embraced by the Democratic Party, is entirely embraced by the Biden campaign, is entirely embraced by left, the left throughout American society. It's overwhelmingly apparent that the new left has adopted an anti-Semitic attitude. Remember, folks, the new left is also anti-religion, much like communism was, much like the old left was. They outwardly condemned, restricted, abolished, Religion and the new left behaves the same way. And so now we have a nation state that is based on religion and the religion of our country, by the way, to be clear, our country is founded on Christianity, but our principles are what we aptly call Judeo-Christian. Folks, you all know, because Dave listeners are familiar with the Bible, you all know that the Christian Bible builds on the Jewish Bible. The Old Testament is the Jewish Bible. The Christian Bible accepts that and adds to it. That's why we call it Judeo-Christian. So when the left attacks Jews, when the left attacks Israel in this anti-Semitic fashion, don't think for a moment they're not also attacking Christianity because they absolutely are. They absolutely are. By way of example, do you see the left criticizing the swath of Muslim countries with overwhelming human rights violations? Do you see the left criticizing communist countries like China with overwhelming human rights violations? Crickets! That's what you hear in comparison. Crickets! Dershowitz goes on to say, unless a Black Lives Matter, unless Black Lives Matter explicitly rescinds its anti-Semitic platform, the organization should not receive the support of decent people. That would be a tragedy because Black Lives Matter does so much good. Eh, eh. But throughout history, organizations that did good also promoted racism, anti-Semitism, homophobia, and other forms of bigotry. Their deeds do not excuse or justify their bad deeds. Today, more than ever, we should recognize that there must be zero tolerance for any form of bigotry, including anti-Semitism, even if it is engaged in by organizations and people who otherwise do much good. I'm less charitable in my view of the Black Lives Matter movement overall. 
back to, that's me speaking, of course, back to Dershowitz. The movement to tear down the statues of people like Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, Andrew Jackson, Andrew Jackson, Columbus, and even Abraham Lincoln, because they also engaged in bigoted actions and promoted bigoted ideas, should teach us that we cannot condone bigotry by today's do-gooders. Rescinding the bigoted portions of the Black Lives Matter platform is mandated by the morality of those who would cancel the contributions of past leaders because of their imperfections. Here we have an opportunity to act now to prevent bigotry from spreading today. He doesn't say it, by the way. But the way to act now to prevent that kind of leftist bigotry is to vote for the Republicans. That is the way to do it. Back to the final paragraph from Dershowitz's opinion piece. I once again challenge the leaders of Black Lives Matter to rescind their anti-Semitic and false condemnation of the nation state of the Jewish people. If they refuse, then those of us who care deeply about black lives, I amongst them, by the way, and I think most of the nation, to be fair, but also care deeply about ending the scourge of anti-Semitism, of course, back to the opinion piece, must support organizations other than Black Lives Matter that promote racial justice without also promoting anti-Semitism. All right, Robert, let's take a break. Um, It is 718 in the morning on the Dave Ellswick show. We got traffic and we got news coming up. Robert Steinbach is filling in for Dave today. Robert Steinbach is a professor of law at the Bowen School of Law at UA Little Rock. You're listening to the Dave Ellswick show 101.1 FM. The answer. This is Dave Ellswick show. I am Robert Steinbach filling for Dave all week and next Monday. I hope your morning's going well. It is now 7.24 in the morning. It is already bright and sunny, and it portends to be a warm day. If you're going to work, you still have a little bit of time to do so. If you're working from home or otherwise staying home, uh, please stay tuned. And remember also to tune in this evening again to hear the rest of the Dave Ellswick show from 6 to 7 p.m. I'll be filling in for both spots, needless to say, as Dave is on vacation in Florida. I'd like to now move on to another topic related as it may be for our common theme in talking about news of the day and news of the day relates to issues of race and gender and society. There's a so-called news analysis in the New York times. News analysis is the way the New York times issues yet another opinion piece without calling it an opinion piece. If you look on the New York Times website today, in general, I mean today broadly, not only this one day, but in general, it is overwhelming how much of what they provide is not news, but opinion. No, it's perfectly fine to have a publication that's entirely opinion. That's an opinion journal. There's no problem with that. But, of course, New York Times doesn't claim to be an opinion provider solely or even predominantly. They claim to be a news organization. I think that claim at this point has been debunked. I think that claim right now is untrue. So let's read this opinion piece by the New York Times and see if their opinion is based on an apt analysis of fact. Here's the thing about opinion, folks. 
everybody's entitled to their own, own opinion, as you well know the saying goes, but they're not entitled to their own facts. And good opinions are based on facts. Now you can have an opinion like I like I prefer chocolate ice cream over vanilla ice cream. That's pure opinion. Either you prefer chocolate flavor or you prefer vanilla flavor. But most opinion and certainly political opinion is based on an underlying fact or facts. It is an analysis of here's the state of reality today. In my opinion, we should pursue this program, this policy to improve society. That's where the opinion comes in. It takes existing facts and it applies an analysis to those facts to suggest future policies. So the article, excuse me, she has fallen into that trap already. The opinion piece by the New York Times is entitled, More Than Ever, Trump Casts Himself as the Defender of White America. Really? Really? This is yet another example of the New York Times, the leftist propaganda machine in general, of putting out racist claims by falsely accusing others of being racist. So it's Peter Baker, who I believe also claims to be a reporter. Now, it used to be the day when the editorial page was entirely separate from the news page of a newspaper and television, etc. That's why, incidentally, you see the New York Times putting out this piece, not under the opinion banner, because Peter Baker is not an opinion writer, he's a news writer, but under the, quote, news analysis, end quote, banner. It's the way to afford the opportunity to the alleged reporters to put out opinion pieces. Let's start reading from this opinion piece from the New York Times. After a summer when hundreds of thousands of people took to the streets protesting racial injustice against black Americans, President Trump has made it clear over the last few days that, in his view, the country's real race problem is bias against white Americans. Just days after returning from Kenosha, Wisconsin, where he staunchly backed law enforcement and did not mention the name of Jacob Blake, the black man shot seven times in the back by the police, Mr. Trump issued an order on Friday to purge the federal government of racial sensitivity training that his White House called divisive anti-American propaganda. Well, we've just talked about that divisive anti-American propaganda that has been imposed upon government workers using your taxpayer dollars. We've demonstrated the truth of the Trump administration's characterization of that propaganda. Excuse me. Yes, I said it correctly. I, I, I apologize. Let's pause the there, thing. Robert. Yes. Let's pick that thought up. When we get Let's back, we have to hear what Rush Limbaugh has to say. And then we got weather, we got traffic, and more coming your way. Robert Steinbach is filling in for Dave Ellswick this week as Dave Ellswick is on vacation. We will be back with more on the Dave Ellswick Show. He Right now, here's Rush. Robert Steinbach filling in for Dave all week and next Monday. We're in the middle of reading an opinion piece from the New York Times 
that doesn't claim to be an opinion piece because it's written by a reporter, so they call it a news analysis. Rubbish! It is absolutely simply an opinion piece because the New York Times no longer observes any distinction between their so-called news and their opinions. In any event, it says this opinion piece by Peter Baker says the following. I read it before the break. I want to reread this sentence because I think it's of critical importance. The president then spent much of uh, oh, excuse me. My apologies. He said, just days after returning from Kenosha, where he, the president, staunchly backed law enforcement and did not mention the name of Jacob Blake, the black man shot seven times in the back by the police, Mr. Trump issued an order on Friday to purge the federal government of racial sensitivity training that his White House called divisive anti-American propaganda. Boy, is there a lot in there for us to break down. It could be the whole show today just dealing with that one sentence. We'll do our best. He didn't mention the name of Jacob Blake. Remember, by the way, that both Joe Biden and um, Harris either visited or called Jacob Blake. Well, who's Jacob Blake? Yes, we know he's the man shot by the cops. He's a man who was legally and justifiably shot by the cops. This man went into a woman's house and assaulted her. The police show up in response to a call for that assault. By the way, a sexual assault. They respond to the call. He resists arrest. They get into a physical fight with him. They tase him. Neither are sufficient to restrain him. He's on one side of a car. He walks all the way around the car the whole time, refusing orders from the police, opens the car door and reaches into the leans in and reaches into the car. As it turns out, there was a knife in the car. By the way, it doesn't matter. The police don't need to wait to actually see a knife or a gun. When a person is resisting arrest and puts himself in a position in which he could reasonably be reaching for a knife or a gun. That's enough for the police to use deadly force. But as it turned out, they were right. He was reaching for a weapon. So he reaches into this car in which there's a knife. And the police are supposed to do nothing, according to the leftists. They're supposed to sit by. Oh, well, well, you know, let's just let him go. Let's just let him walk away. Apparently, says the leftists. Say the leftists? Yeah, say the leftists. Think about that for a moment. A person resists arrest when the police are called due to a violent assault. He's tased, no effect. They wrestle with him, no effect. And he resists, walks away, and engages in outright dangerous behavior that portends severe violence against the police. That is the archetype of when deadly force is justifiable. So the president didn't mention his name? Good, because if he mentioned his name, he would have had to describe all of the wrongful behavior by Jacob Blake. They would have, he would have had to describe that Jacob 
Blake was no innocent victim at all. At all. That's what he would have had to do. So the leftists, including Peter Baker from the New York Times, if he would have had to write, oh, in this hypothetical world, oh, the president mentioned his name and aptly characterized this person as resisting arrest and engaging in behavior that justified him being shot. Now, to be clear, every time the police shoot someone, it's an unfortunate situation. It means the situation got out of hand because the ideal situation, well, of course, the ideal situation is you don't have someone committing a crime like Jacob Blake ostensibly was. But thereafter, if you have someone committing a crime, the ideal situation is that he doesn't resist arrest and he doesn't use uh, uh, force and or engage in behavior, both of which justify the use of deadly force by the police. But none of that was the case here. You had someone engaging in ostensibly criminal behavior who resisted arrest and engaged in behavior that justified the use of deadly force. So Peter Baker, you want the president to say his name, as the phrase goes? I'll say his name. I'll say his name. Jacob Blake was shot justifiably. As tragic as the, any shooting is, he was shot justifiably. How's that? Do you prefer that? Because that's the truth. The opinion piece by Peter Baker from the New York Times goes on to say the president then spent much of the weekend tweeting about his action, presenting himself as a warrior against identity politics. Quote, according to the president, this is a sickness that cannot be allowed to continue, he wrote, the president did, of such programs. Please report any sightings so we can quickly extinguish. He reposted a tweet from a conservative outlet hailing his order. Sorry, liberals. How to be anti-white 101 is permanently canceled. I discussed with you in the beginning of this show that offensive slide from one of these indoctrination sessions showing a black couple seeking a loan from a bank today and in which the bank officer is literally wearing a KKK hood and uh, robe. Now tell me, tell me, that's not racism? That's not propaganda? That's not indoctrination? Tell me. I'd love to hear it. Because of course it is. Of course it is. This opinion piece by Peter Baker goes on to say, not in generations. By the way, he's, he looks like he's 14 years old. He's older, but he looks like he's 14. So I'm not sure what apt knowledge he has of generations. Yes, he could read history books. Okay, I'll grant you that. Not in generations has a sitting president so overtly declared himself the candidate of white America. What a bunch of rubbish. Because, because you're against racism of any form, including Racism against white people, including claiming that white people are KKK hooded individuals. You are a candidate of white people. Really? So if you are against black racism, are you a candidate of black people? How about this? 
How about being a candidate of all people? How about that? But this is the absolute bias of the New York Times and other mainstream media outlets. Candidate of white people. He's a candidate for all Americans, including white Americans. There's nothing wrong with being white, but what's implicit in Peter Baker's statement is that there perhaps is. It's really rather disgusting. Baker goes on to say, while Mr. Trump's campaign sought to temper the cultural war messaging at the RNC, the convention last month, by showcasing black and Hispanic supporters who denied that he is a racist, the president himself has increasingly made appeal to the grievances of white supporters, a centerpiece of his campaign to win a second term. Oh, so much more to unpack. First, it says that the convention showcased black and Hispanic supporters that who denied that Trump is a racist to temper the culture war messaging. Really? Really? That's why he put on these black and Hispanic speakers. Really? You can't put on a black or Hispanic speaker simply because they have something useful to say? Moreover, I thought it was the left's position that various groups need to see people from their groups in positions of authority so as to identify with those people. If that statement from the left is true, then we are all but compelled to have black and Hispanic speakers at every organizational meeting. So by the very metric set up by the left, we're required to have black and Hispanic speakers. But Peter Baker from the New York Times ascribes ill motive when the president does what the left calls for. How's that? for hypocrisy. As I said, he went on to say, the president himself has increasingly made appeals to the grievances of white supporters a centerpiece, centerpiece of his campaign. How about this? He's made the grievances of all Americans a centerpiece of his campaign. How's that for a crazy supposition or conclusion? The president's job, amongst others, is to help solve the problems of Americans. If there are problems of Americans who happen to be white and the president seeks to address them, such as, such as canceling this racist propaganda that had been permeating instruction of federal employees, so be it. Good for him, indeed. But you see, this is the common tactic of the left, of Marxists, and of new Marxists. Those are undoubtedly significantly overlapping groups, to be clear. What, what tactic am I speaking about? I'm talking about the tactic of claiming that your opponent uh, is racist, and that your opponent can't talk about race. Or, in the traditional Marxist movement, uh, they are empowered by class. It's the same notion, though. In other words, the left is free 
to scream racism at every turn of a corner, even though racism, while it does exist, is not so pervasive. But then when someone who opposes the left brings out a demonstration of racism or sexism or other isms, the left says, you're not allowed to talk about that. You're not allowed to talk about racism or sexism because the only race that is to be protected or races that are to be protected by racism protections are the ones we decide are deserving of protection. The only sex that is to be protected is the, is the sex that we decide is to be protected. Other races or sexes deserve no protection whatsoever. And as that political cartoon that I've spoken about throughout this show already has demonstrated, certain races, according to the left, are inherently, ra- are inherently racist themselves. They are inherently evil, according to this movement. They are literally shrouded in a hood of the KKK. Those people don't deserve any protection whatsoever. I agree, by the way, the KKK doesn't deserve. Well, to be fair, even members of the KKK have constitutional rights. You can't gun them down on the street. But they don't deserve any protection of laws regarding racism. I agree with that. But see, that's how you exclude men. That's how you exclude whites. That's how you exclude often Asians from protections against racism or sexism. You say they don't count. You say they are the landed aristocracy or some equivalent thereof. They're not subject to racism. They are the racists as a group, says the left. All right, Robert, let's think about that as we go to a break. We'll be right back for our final segment of the 7 o'clock hour. Robert Steinbach is filling in for Dave Ellswick this morning as Dave Ellswick is on vacation. He will be back next Tuesday. Right now, don't go anywhere. We'll be right back on the Dave Ellswick Show, 101.1 FM, The Answer. I am Robert Stomach filling in for Dave Ellswick all week and next Monday. We are continuing to talk about this opinion piece uh, falsely described as a news analysis by the New York Times, written by one of its so-called reporters, Peter Baker. So I'm going to skip ahead uh, in this piece because there's only so much of this propaganda, even while analyzing it with you all, I can read over the air because it's such rubbish. Of course, it's fully available online if you'd like to read it in its entirety. Peter Baker goes on to say, in effect, Trump is reaching out to a subset of white voters who who, who think the news media and political elites see Trump supporters as inherently racist uh, because they repeatedly say in the news media, on MSNBC, and other outlets, that Trump supporters are racist. We, we as Trump supporters, think that various aspects of the news media call Trump supporters racist? We've heard it. We've seen it. We've, we've read it. We think 
If by think you mean we think the truth and know it to be the case with demonstrable evidence, yes, okay, okay. It's a rather curious use of the word, but okay. We think. The opinion piece goes on uh, to say, Mr. Trump has repeatedly rejected the notion that America has a problem with systemic racial bias, dismissing instances of police brutality against black Americans as a work of a few bad apples in his words. Let's be clear here, folks. The United States does not have a problem with systemic racial bias. This is not a systemically biased country. That's the fact. So while he puts it out there, Baker does, as some grand discovery, excuse me, pardon me, that he gets into the mind of the president. Oh, let's be clear. There is no grand systemic bias in this country. No, there is not. Now, it doesn't mean it's perfect. And it does mean that race has played uh, a role in certain actions. But for example, the biggest action and claim that you see by the Black Lives Matter movement, that somewhat amorphous group and adherence thereof, is that the cops are disproportionately killing blacks over whites. And that's simply untrue. In fact, a black economist at Harvard um, University did an analysis and said that it's the opposite. Thank you so much, Robert. It is almost time to uh, to say goodbye, but don't worry. We will be back in the 6 o'clock hour tonight, 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. Robert Steinbach is filling in for Dave Ellswick as Dave Ellswick is on vacation. We will be back right now. Let's go to Financial Issues Live from 8 to 11 a.m. on 101.1 FM, The Answer. I am Robert Stomach filling in for Dave all week and next Monday. We are here in the 6 p.m. hour talking about issues that we started this morning. If you were listening to the show this morning, I was finishing a thought on the reality in the United States regarding race in America. Because as you know, the claim by the left is that amongst other things, the that police are killing sorry if you heard that me killing a mosquito at the same time that the police are killing blacks at a higher rate than they're killing whites and a black economist from harvard of all places has made clear that that's absolutely untrue but to be fair and that's why i want to make sure i get this in because i ran out of time in the morning to be fair, he, has, he also says that police use greater force 
against blacks than they do whites. So we need to keep both components in mind. But the mainstay of the claim of the leftists is not the greater force, non-deadly force, let me be clear, because killing them or the use of deadly force was the other category, the other category. So the use of non-deadly force is greater against blacks, but the use of deadly force is greater against whites. If, if I had to choose between the two, and I don't want to choose between the two, because I would hope that the police don't use deadly force when they're not supposed to, or non-deadly force when they're not supposed to. But if I had to choose between the two, I would think I would prefer to have the non-deadly force used against me more often than the deadly force. Of course, I don't want any force used against me. But that's the point. So how is that systemic racism? If one type of force, the less deadly by definition, tautologically, is used more against blacks, and the more deadly is used more against whites. How is that systemic racism? It reflects a lack of perfect adherence to procedures because it should never be used when it's not appropriate, and if it's being used after we factor out all extraneous factors uh, at different rates then means that one group is being disproportionately uh, uh, has that uh, force being disproportionately applied but as i said the deadly force is applied less to blacks than it is to whites i suspect part of the reason frankly is that with all of the false claims being made about the use of deadly force by police Meaning not all of them are false, but many of the claims are false, like the false claim that the use of deadly force against Jacob Blake was improper. It was not. It was totally justifiable. When those permeate the zeitgeist, when they are propagated by the left-wing media, the result is police are less willing to use the proper amount of force in certain circumstances. That's what happens, and that's why I posit you see these results. The, the, this opinion piece by Peter Baker goes on later on to say, the president often makes the unfounded assertion that he has done more for black Americans than any president other than perhaps Abraham Lincoln. He cites his support for funding for historically black colleges and universities, his signature legislation overhauling criminal justice sentencing, and an unemployment rate for black people that dropped to record lows on his watch, continuing a trend that begun under his predecessor until it rose again with the pandemic. Again, so much to unpack. Let's start with the last first and work our way somewhat backwards. Is it not true that under the Trump administration, the unemployment rate for blacks dropped to their lowest rates in recorded history. Of course it's true. Oh, but Peter Baker has to say, well, that trend, that direction started under Obama. Yes, but then it flatlined. Nobody talks about the fact that it flatlined. Nobody from the left because the economy flatlined because the Obama administration had so many restrictions on economic growth that there wasn't any. 
So unemployment wasn't going down. In fact, President Obama said this is the new normal when it comes to unemployment. So the trend was high unemployment came down. And then it flatlined. And then Trump brought it way down. No one predicted the levels of unemployment under Trump. Under Obama, they were in the 6% range. Under Trump, they were in the 3% range. And then they point out, well, they shot back up during the pandemic. Of course they did. The left is the one that are the ones that are calling for the shutdowns. Don't get me wrong. Trump did some shutdowns as well, and they were apt. And I happen to be a supporter of having good restrictions on excessive interaction in society, but ones brought about reasonably with the input of the legislators like those here in Arkansas. And I defer to the democratic process. So are they're blaming Trump for the rise in unemployment across his country because of the pandemic. Did Trump create the pandemic? And to the extent that there's unemployment, did Trump create the unemployment? There is unemployment, to be, to be clear. I'm not suggesting there isn't. The left supports the unemployment because they support the shutdown, some of which makes sense. The shutdown, that is. They're, they're at least up until now, we can debate what we should be doing going forward. And I'm not saying we should abandon all measures, but up until now, at least some of the shutdown was justifiable, meaning I support. But of course, it results in some level of temporary unemployment. By the way, it's the Democrats who are not supporting con- continuing giving unemployment insurance to those unemployed right now. That's the irony of it all. Let's go back to the preceding statement in that paragraph. The president often makes the unfounded assertion, says Peter Baker in the New York Times, that he's done more for black Americans than any president other than perhaps Abraham Lincoln. And they go on in this piece to describe some of the very important things that the president has done for all Americans, but inure to the benefit, amongst others, of African-Americans. There's nothing wrong with recognizing that fact. But then he says it's unfounded. Where is Peter Baker's evidence that it is unfounded? First, as I said earlier in the show, this is exactly the type of political puffery that we've seen all the time. And I don't mean that as a critique. I don't mean that as an insult. So while I'm the best president for African-Americans and others since Abraham Lincoln, okay, how do you disprove a claim like that? How do you disprove when Tide says, we're the best washing detergent out there? Now, they're certainly better than the dollar store washing detergent. I know that because I bought the dollar store detergent, and it's just watered down. It's not as good. If you use more, it's, I suspect, similar. But there are other big brands out there that I'm sure have essentially the same cleaning profile. But Tide continues, as they all do, by the way, to say, we're the best. Why? Because that's advertising. So the president can't say that. And Peter Baker says that is unfounded. Folks, that means untrue. And yet... Peter Baker has not listed any of the other presidents that he believes 
has done more for black Americans. You think that Johnson did more for black Americans than Trump did because Johnson passed the Civil Rights Act? You can make that argument, by the way. I'm not saying it's true, but I'm not saying it's false, meaning it's a subjective judgment. By the way, Johnson used the N-word all the time. How does that play into your analysis? I think it should. So you tell me who is the best president. How about this? Forget about best president for black Americans. Who was the best president in the last 50 years? Many conservatives say Reagan. I thought Reagan did a wonderful job. Not perfect. Not perfect, but a wonderful job. Ask a Democrat. He's going to say, he or she's going to say, somebody else, Clinton maybe, I don't know, FDR, depending how far you want to go back. Who are they going to say? They're not going to say Carter, right? Maybe they say Obama. I don't know. So you have a Democrat saying some Democrat was the best president in history. You have a Democrat saying the Democratic president did more for Americans than any other president in history. And you have Republicans who say a Republican did more for Americans than any president in history. That is an opinion, pure and simple, based on some facts, but the, or some facts, I should say, but the, eva- the subjective evaluation of those facts. What Republicans think are good things might be things that Democrats think are bad and vice versa. There is a subjective evaluation. And so President Trump says, I've done more for black Americans. And Baker from The New York Times says, that's unfounded? It's not unfounded. You're entitled to disagree. You could say, well, some disagree. You could say, I disagree. But you see, he doesn't want to say, I disagree, because then it makes transparent that his so-called news analysis is not a news analysis at all. It's not news, even though he claims to be a reporter. It is simply an opinion piece. That's what the left does. They smuggle in their op-eds and their editorials into their so-called news. Unfounded, unfounded, without basis, without evidence, without substantiation. Yet Peter Baker himself lists the fact. Now, he does it by saying the president cites the funding of historically black colleges and universities and his signature legislation overhauling the criminal justice sentencing uh, system. Is that not evidence to support Trump's claim that he is the greatest president for black Americans since Abraham Lincoln? You might say, that's not enough. That's not enough. If you are someone who thinks that welfare programs are the most important thing, then you would say, but I don't care about those two things you listed. I care about welfare programs. That's why it's a subjective evaluation. That's why you can't call it unfounded. You can say it's disagreed upon, but you can't call it unfounded. But this is a transformation of discussion and debate of free speech that we see the left doing to what? To shutting down debate to being anti-free speech, anti-public discussion. You've seen it on MSNBC and other stations as well, where they say, we're not going to discuss the other side of this argument. What? 
because that's not true. Well, I understand you think it's not true, but it doesn't mean you're not that that discussing the other side shouldn't be part of the debate. This is what's so remarkable. The left has defined away the notion of free speech because the left now says that the only speech that is protected is speech that they deem to be true. Of course, that's exactly what the First Amendment was designed to prevent. It was designed to prevent the government from saying, oh, these statements are true. Of course, these statements would be those that support the government at the time. And anything else, well, that's not true, so it deserves no protection. That's exactly what the First Amendment is designed to prevent. But from the left, and it has grown out of the political correctness movement, which was started in, which started in the 70s, certainly got its big growth in the 80s, was attempt to shut down certain types of speech. You can't say that. I can't say that. What do you mean I can't say that? That's my interpretation of the facts. Well, that's not right. Well, you say it's not right. I say it's right. All right, Robert, on that note, let's take a break. You are listening to the Dave Ellsbeck Show, the 6 p.m. hour. Robert Steinbach is filling in for Dave. Robert Steinbach is a law professor with the Bowen School of Law at UA Little Rock. We'll be right back here on the Dave Ellsbeck Show. Joe and I am Robert Steinbach filling in for Dave all week and the following Monday as well. We're talking about this opinion piece in the... New York Times, written by Peter Baker, under the guise of what they call a news analysis, which at this point is nothing more than an opinion piece, and they and it's transparently so. And so I'm going to finish up my thoughts on this piece because I think we've had enough of it, frankly. But what's important to recognize about it is that the left has been adopting a new tactic now. And this tactic is to call untrue those subjective statements that they disagree with. So essentially, now they haven't done this, but essentially, if you were to say, I think President Trump is better for this country than oatmeal Joe Biden, they would say, well, that's an unfounded statement. No, it's not. No, it's not. There are facts to support it, like Joe Biden is ostensibly suffering from some level of dementia. But you can say otherwise. I told you on the on this show before that friends of mine are liberals. So they want to enact liberal policies. So I said, well, you do recognize that Joe Biden is suffering some from some mental deficit. And they both said, yes. But they said both he and those who are propping him up, my term, uh, will still nonetheless support more liberal policies than President Trump. Okay, you're entitled to that view. That is a subjective view, but it doesn't make my view wrong no more than it makes your view wrong. It's a subjective evaluation. And when the press goes over, we fact-check the president and his administration, and they have a 1,001 untrue statements, how many of those allegedly untrue statements are subjective statements or statements of opinion, which 
inherently cannot be untrue? That's the question. I know some are because I just gave you examples. They said the president made an untrue. They said it was unfounded, no less. That his claim that he has been the most beneficial to black Americans other than Abraham Lincoln. They said that statement is untrue. That's an opinion. That's a subjective statement. So you can't call that statement unfounded. But yet they do. And I'm sure they include statements like that in their false tally of untrue statements from the president or the administration. It's really quite quite tragic. So what do we talk about next? Let's talk about a recent opinion that just came out from the Court of Appeals in the Ninth Circuit. That's in California. Remember, the way our federal courts work is you go to a local court. It's called a district court. That's your trial court. That's where you file your complaint. And the judge, there's one judge, the judge decides whether the complaint can go forward. And if so, you have a trial, etc. Well, as you might recall, the Trump administration said there are these temporary programs in place, immigration programs to deal with things like floods in Haiti that occurred 20, 30 years ago. And when those bad events happen, earthquakes and floods and whatever, the U.S. said, okay, we'll take some folks temporarily from those countries because of that emergency situation. 30 years later, those, those temporary amnesty, temporary visa, whatever you want to call it, meaning the temporary status that allowed those people to come and stay in America continued for up to 30 years. Well, needless to say, the flood's gone. The earthquake ended. Things have been repaired relative to that issue that gave rise to the temporary status. I'm not saying those countries are necessarily great places to go back to compared to staying in America. And I point that out to simply say many of those immigrants have stayed in America. Why? Because they decided that being in America is better. Okay. I think America is the greatest country in the world. So I think that if you were to compare it to any country, the most developed other country in the world, whatever that may be, I don't know, Germany, America's better. Absolutely. We don't have to say that. I just did, and I'll say it again. So these folks came over up to 30 years ago. They kept getting these temporary status visas, shall we call them, renewed. By the way, by Republicans and Democrats alike. Because the Republicans were complicitous in this failure to observe our immigration laws. Why, in part? Because the Chamber of Commerce is anti-restriction uh, on immigration. So let's pause, chamber of, yes. let's pause right there, Robert. We'll be right back. We have to get to some news. Robert Steinbach is filling in for Dave Ellswick this week. We'll be right back. This is 101.1 FM, The Answer. This is the Dave Ellswick Show, and I am Robert Steinbach filling in for Dave all week and next Monday as Dave is on a deserved vacation. 
as you know, I'm a law professor, but I want to highlight that my views are my views alone and not necessarily of my employer, not necessarily those of the University of Arkansas Little Rock Bowen School of Law, not necessarily those of the University of Arkansas Little Rock or any other component, including the University of Arkansas system. Folks, we're talking about this ongoing temporary visa program that has been in place for up to 30 years for specific emergencies arising from uh, floods, earthquakes that have obviously long since dissipated. And yet that program has allowed temporary immigrants, as they've been described, to stay here essentially permanently for up to 30 years. So the Trump administration said, wait, what? Wait, what? Uh, If it's temporary, let's go look at what the cause of that temporary displacement was. If the cause is gone, well, then the temporary visa should be gone as well. And so the Trump administration did that. And guess what happened? Guess what happened? Racist! He's a racist! You see, because he's not letting some people into this country, and they're inevitably foreigners, so he's a xenophobe, and many of them are uh, minorities of one form or another, so he's a racist. Or he's just seeking to actually impose our immigration laws, or apply, rather, I should say, our immigration laws the way they are actually written. Meaning these temporary reprieves from the total numbers of immigrants allowed in are supposed to be, I dare say it, folks, temporary. And so, of course, those who oppose this sued. That's okay. That's why we have courts. But what is not surprising is they went to San Francisco, literally to sue. Because since the law applies nationwide, all you have to do is find a party that's affected and sue in that area. So they found some parties that were affected in San Francisco because they wanted a liberal judge. And they got one. And the liberal trial judge said, uh, you can't do that. So the Trump administration aptly appealed to the Ninth Circuit, which traditionally has been very liberal, but Trump has been able to put some judges on that court to balance it out somewhat. I'd have to look at the numbers now. It might even be more Republican than it is Democratic. I don't know offhand. And sure enough, he won. Trump won at the Court of Appeals. And here's an interesting fact. Three, the Court of Appeals hears cases in three judge panels. And so you need two of the three to win. You could have all three, but if you have one, then obviously the other side got the remaining two. So he gets two out of the three votes. One vote from a judge appointed by Bush, one vote by a judge appointed by Trump, and the person that voted against appointed by Obama. So what does this demonstrate? It demonstrates that unfortunately, the interpretation of critical components of our law, of our laws, are affected by the political slash judicial philosophy of the judges. Therefore, it really matters who appoints the judges. Yes, they're supposed to be objective. They're supposed to apply the law 
like an umpire calling balls and strikes as the analogy goes. But interestingly, and not surprisingly, in this case and many others, the two Republican judges called called them strikes, and the Democratic judge called it a ball, or vice versa. For the analogy, it doesn't matter. The point is they came out to opposite conclusions. Who appoints the judges matters. Another reason that Trump has aptly highlighted for voting for him over Biden. It's really, it goes back to what I said this morning on the show. This may or may not be the most consequential election in our lifetimes. We simply can't know that for sure ahead of time, but it is most certainly one of the three, say, one of the few most consequential elections in our lifetimes. That, we have enough information to draw that conclusion. So he won. Now, just so you understand the procedure, the losing side can go back to the panel of the three judges and say, we'd like you to reconsider it. They, almost invariably, they're not going to win that because the, the judges had already decided the issue. So unless the, uh, the losing side came up with some new argument, there's no reason to change that opinion. The losing side can then ask the whole court, because remember, it's three judges appointed from the whole court of appeals. It varies in size, uh, from 10 to 20 plus, depending on the court, can go back to that court and say, we want you all to meet together and give us your decision. And of course, then you can get a change in outcome, particularly if the panel was a majority of one party and the whole court is a majority of the other party appointed by a, a president of, uh, of each. But that's what I mean by majority. I'm identifying the judges with the political party of the appointing president because that's an apt way to determine the political and judicial philosophy of the judge, albeit it doesn't always 100% work out that way in application. But again, what you would need then is a majority of the judges on the whole court to accept hearing that case, that's voluntary, it's not automatic, and then vote against the decision of the panel. Also highly unlikely as a general matter. I'd have to look at the composition of this court to see whether I think it's more or less likely here. So yet again, we see eventually when the court works through, the court system works through President Trump's policies, they're upheld. Initially, you see all this hoopla in the news, but then at the end of the day, you don't see much hoopla. It's reported, don't get me wrong, but not nearly the hoopla that you saw when the trial judge denied the president's right to do what he had done relative to immigration. But speaking about different focuses of the media on the president, when the acts are when the events are in support of the president versus when the events uh, don't support the president. Let's talk about these two peace treaties that the president helped broker, the president's administration, to be clear, helped broker between Israel and two of the Arab countries in the Middle East. Oh, yes. It's reported in the New York Times. It's buried low. It was not in all caps at the top of the app or on the hard copy, absolutely not, as major events typically are. 
The New York Times and most papers have a different typeset, a different display for major news events. They put it at the top of the page. It's often in a bolder cap. It's above the fold. It, it often takes up everything above the fold. I'm talking about on the physical paper where it's folded in half. None of that took place here. Oh, well, Rob, you see, it's not really a peace treaty because they weren't currently at war. Oh, I see. Well, it's a resumption of normal or a creation, never before existing creation of normal relations between these two Arab countries and Israel. And you're dickering over whether or not that's a peace treaty. It's a peace treaty. It's a peace treaty by any common vernacular. But again, this is the example of how the left calls the Trump administration, uh, says they're not telling the truth. Well, it's not a peace treaty, so that's not a true statement. Say, yeah, okay, okay. It's a peace treaty. How's that? I declare it's a peace treaty. You don't like it? Tough. Because that's an apt characterization. You need to write a resum- uh, not Again, I made a mistake. Not resum- a creation of normal relations between these otherwise two uh, um, hostile uh, um, entities. You can't call that a peace treaty. It's not shorter, more succinct, and just as apt. Really? Really? Because all of a sudden the left or the grammar police when it comes to the Trump administration all in their ongoing effort to call the Trump administration's claims unfounded. Barely the coverage of this really, truly monumental event. Remember, folks, that when Trump decided to do what every recent president, Democrat and Republican alike, promised to do during their elections, but lied to you, lied to you when they got into office. Where were those accusations of lies, by the way? Where was that recognition of truth? by the press that the president promised to move the embassy of the U.S. in Israel from the city of Tel Aviv to the capital city of Jerusalem. Why doesn't the, why don't the press say, here's an example of the truth where every other president lied to you? Why don't you see that in the news? And during those times when, when the president ordered the embassy to be moved. He got it moved in a few months, not like the bureaucracy wanted to do, literally over many years and tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars. Well, we've got to build this whole facility and it's going to take five years and it's going to cost $300 million. What? You know what they did? They found an existing building because guess what? They exist. There are buildings already in place. Well, we don't know who's going to have the proper level of security. Put in the security. They did so. For months. I think for a few hundred thousand dollars. Something really innocuous. So Trump kept his promise, the promise that every prior president lied to you about. And he did it at a cost much lower than the embedded leftist bureaucracy wanted to do. And what did the the liberals and the leftists say when this happened? Oh, it's going to be a horror show. It's going to result in violence. By the way, if that were to be true, the violence would have been because 
people who are against the policy of moving the embassy would have committed violence. Well, we're not going to be blackmailed by those who tell us if you do what you think is right, we're going to black we're going to commit violence against you. We're not going to be blackmailed by those kind of threats. Americans don't operate that way. Oh, well, we were going to put our ships in the port in Saudi Arabia, but certain terrorists said we better not do it or they're going to do some terroristic acts. Oh, okay, so we won't do it. No, we don't operate that way. The United States is not going to be bullied. And guess what happened, by the way? Nothing. Nothing bad happened. No great uproar. In fact, we now have two countries making peace with Israel. So the pundits were absolutely wrong. And wanted to extract concessions from the from Israel, they said. Well, Israel needs to give us concessions. Wait, what? why does Israel need to give the U.S. concessions to comply with the promises of every presidential candidate in the recent history? Since when, when they ran for office, Obama, Bush, Clinton, they said, we're going to move the embassy to Jerusalem, they didn't say, if we can extract some concessions from Israel. They didn't say that. They said, we're going to move the embassy. And then they lied to you. They lied to you because they didn't move the embassy. Oh, well, now is not a good time. Sort of like, you know, that perpetual continuation of the status quo, like was the, the case with this so-called temporary visa program that went on for over 30 years. Obama lied to you, Bush lied to you, Clinton lied to you. That's the truth. All right, Robert, let's pick let's pick this thought up in the next uh, segment, our final segment of the Dave Ellswick show. Robert Steinbach is filling in for Dave this week as Dave is on vacation. We'll be right back with the final segment of the seven o'clock hour of or the six o'clock hour, I should say, of the Dave Ellswick show. This is the Dave Ellswick Show. I am Robert Steinbeck filling in for Dave this Tuesday and the remainder of this week and the following Monday. We're wishing Dave a great vacation. He's down in Florida. And we are talking about topics of the day as we always do. This is the last segment for today's show. Uh, Stay tuned, uh, of course, to 101.1 FM The Answer for other interesting and exciting and informative programming uh, as they do have all day folks we are living in a world that is undoubtedly bifurcated is undoubtedly um, intention and the question becomes for us how do we resolve this and we're talking about race issues we're talking about gender issues we spoke yesterday about how this term mansplaining has become perfectly acceptable language. But could you imagine replacing the word man with woman or with other uh, 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 certain minority groups? Could you imagine that? No. Why? Because it would aptly be called sexism or racism. And so when the media says, well, Trump is defending white people. No, no. Trump is defending all people. To borrow a phrase from Chief Justice Roberts, 
the best way to stop discrimination is to stop discriminating, discriminating against everyone. No one gets a free pass on discrimination and discrimination, contrary to some of the critical race theorists. Those were the folks propagating that kind of racist uh, nonsense that I described to you earlier. Uh, Contrary to their claims, discrimination, racism, sexism can operate in all directions, meaning whites can discriminate against blacks. Blacks can discriminate against whites. Men can discriminate against women. Women can discriminate against men. Women can discriminate against other women. Men can discriminate against men. However you can draw those relationships on a flow chart, they can exist. And we should be vigilant in seeking to eradicate all forms of discrimination, not just the politically correct chosen forms of discrimination. I've worked throughout my life to achieve a discrimination-free world. Now I realize it's like a tangent. You will always get closer and closer to that goal, but you will never achieve perfection. And that's okay. I say it's okay not because I don't desire achieving perfection, but because I recognize that the world is complicated and you can't achieve such a level of perfection. It's that simple. But that recognition also doesn't serve as fodder for the false claim that we live in a racist nation, that we live in a sexist nation, that we live in a biased nation. We do not. I will state that as a fact. It's really a conclusion, but so be it. We do not. So if you don't come into the analysis with the false premise that we live in a racist nation, then you don't pursue various programs that seek to cast various groups as racist. On the whole, no less. Because that in itself, if those characterizations are based on race, which they are, is in and of itself racist. That's the perverse irony and tragedy of what we see with so much of political correctness and what has grown directly out of political correctness, much of the critical race theory analysis. Not all of it's wrong, by the way. No, there are some apt insights, but not the ones that are being shoved down the throats of federal employees. It is, in fact, a reductionist form of critical race theory that results in exactly what the administration has said, that it is essentially a claim that certain groups are inherently racist. That is a false claim. That is an invidious claim. That is it invidious? It's certainly insidious. I got to go look up what invidious means. It is an improper claim. And there's no way our tax dollars should be funding that kind of propaganda. And so the Trump administration has done the right thing. But I guarantee you this, it will be one of the first things that the Trump excuse me, that a Biden administration would seek to undermine, reverse, indeed, should Biden be elected president. Or should I say, should Biden and Harris be elected president? Because as we discussed, we know Biden is not going to be 
acting as a president in the traditional sense that we've seen historically. He is not capable at this point of doing that. So Harris will have a hand in it much greater than has traditionally been the case. We will see a leftist movement like you've never seen before. The Obama administration put into place some significantly leftist policies, but it did so relatively slowly, and it tried to do so under the radar. Neither will take place under a Biden administration. It will be crammed down our throats, and it will be done in the first 100 days. So, yes, I go back to my point. This is no doubt one of the most consequential elections that we will see in our lifetimes. Well, that is a good um, note to end on. Thank you so much, Robert, for hosting the show again. We will see you tomorrow morning. Robert Steinbuck is filling in for Dave all this week as Dave is on vacation. We have Larry Elder coming up next right here on 101.1 FM, The Answer, and come back to see the Dave Ellswick Show from 6 to 8 p.m. and then from 6 to 7 p.m. on 101.1, The Answer.